Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In August, a police officer responding to a domestic incident in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot 29-year-old Jacob Blake in the back seven times. Blake survived, but is paralyzed from the waist down. The shooting happened amid already heightened tensions around police violence, with calls and protests for justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On Tuesday, the Kenosha County DA announced that he would not press charges against the officer who shot Blake or the other two officers involved. The ruling has spurred more protest and surfaced tensions around police accountability. Connecticut's controversial police accountability bill took effect January 1st, and it seeks to address many of these concerns. Coming up, we'll talk to lawyer and poet Dwayne Betts about police reform, providing books to prisoners, and how he's using poetry to make sense of his own time behind bars. But first, this week marks the start of the legislative session in Connecticut. State Senator Gary Winfield represents Connecticut's 10th district. He co-chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee and was instrumental in crafting the police accountability bill. He joins us now to talk about how that will be implemented and what he sees as priorities for this legislative session and this year. Senator Winfield, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. So we're in a new year. We're about to start a new legislative session in Connecticut. And much of last year, the attention centered on the pandemic and also the uprisings over uh, police misconduct and also violence. What, as you think about starting this legislative session, what should be the priority for you and your colleagues? There's a lot. Um, as you as you suggest, the country as a whole and Connecticut by extension um, dealt with a lot of the things that we have chosen to uh, ignore or not really deal with for a long time. Um, COVID, uh, some people say, revealed to us who we really are. Um, that's debatable to me. Uh, I think we know who we are, uh, but certainly in, in efforts to do things like we did here in Connecticut around police accountability and some of the uh, ways in which we touched upon uh, the issue of COVID, uh, you'll see those show up again in the General Assembly. I think we've got to think about how do we actually deal with the problems that exist. And one of the things that, that I've been talking to my colleagues about is the approach we have where we deal with the issues of a person and not the issues themselves or the places where those issues reside. And so we'll create programs that help people, but those people can leave those environments and those environments stay the same year after year after year. And so if there's a focus of mine that uh, both is part of my role as the chair of judiciary and uh, my role as someone who's been concerned for a very long time with who we actually are, I think that role is to say, we need to be concerned as much with place as with person uh, because policy gets concretized into systems by doing what we've been doing. 
So let's talk about that place in person. There's been a lot of talk in Connecticut about a recent op-ed written by uh, Bob Stefanowski, who was the Republican candidate for governor. And one of the things that you tweeted out, Senator, was, you know, people are really upset about the comments made about cities and about urban areas in Connecticut. But you asked, does the party have a plan for those cities that they seem to want to protect when they feel it's being attacked? So what is the plan that needs to be in place for these places to address the kinds of concerns that you just mentioned? Yeah, and, and let me say that I think I know the answer to my own question, which is that the party does not have a plan, which is the reason why I, I, I sent the tweet. Uh, first, I felt like no one in my position other than myself would uh, put that out there, but I thought it was important to put it out there because it's easy to, to criticize Bob Stefanowski and the things he says, but there's an issue in these places. And whether it be the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, no one's looking to deal with the issue. Um, and this is why I said, I think that we've got to change the way that we do that. So we, we are going to have a conversation about cannabis, for instance. That conversation will be a conversation in which uh, we're going to be talking about these new monies that are coming into the state and throwing them into our general general um, budget. And then we're going to say, well, we need to have equity. So we'll throw some money back out of the, gen the general budget to uh, these communities. But again, that's the same thing that we've been doing. Um, we've got to think about, is there a way that when these new monies come in, um, they are designed to do things to change those areas where people live, right? So there's a conversation going on about housing and whether or not we can open up opportunities outside of the spaces in which people live. And as I listen to this conversation, um, polls begin to develop. There are people who are like, we gotta do that. We gotta open up these spaces. And there are other people who are like, no, what we have to do is fix the areas where the people live. All of, all of this thinking is just binary and it doesn't really get at the issue. And the issue here really is we have a suburban legislature um, and it thinks as a suburban legislature would. What we need to be do thinking about is how do we improve the space where people are and yet also have the opportunity because one drives the other, right? You're, that type of legislature is not going to fix, if, if you think of it as broken, which I don't, a Hartford without the potential for people leaving Hartford and they're not, so both drive each other. So I just think we have to think differently about what it is we're doing. And there's no time as, as good as the president because it's on the news every day. It's in people's mind. So that link between what's happening in those urban spaces and how some other places benefit from that, you know, it's nowhere more apparent than looking at jails and prisons in the state of Connecticut and how many people and communities who were already vulnerable become even more vulnerable in those spaces. And we've seen that quite a bit with COVID-19 and the impact that it's having. I believe we've already had eight inmate deaths due to COVID-19 and the Department of Correction says it's regularly testing employees. When you think about that notion of vulnerability, when you think about the impact on community when people return, should we be doing something different? Yeah, so the prisons, uh, it's, it's a touchy subject with me. I, uh, when we began this, it just made sense to me and knowing what I know about prisons that we would have major issues in the prisons. And I feel as though 
we as a government haven't done nearly enough. Um, I'm currently engaged in conversations to uh, open up conversations again with the attempts to, to open up conversations again with the executive branch about this. Not only have we had the number of deaths that you suggest, but the number of deaths uh, that have happened recently uh, seem to indicate that while we are all thinking about the prospect of a, a, a vaccine and getting to the end of this in the prisons, uh, what they're facing is, and a, 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 what looks like it could be an increase, uh, and we're too close to the end to be making silly mistakes. Um, we should make sure that the policy is uniform across um, the prisons, not just that it's rhetorically uniform, that it's actually uniform, that there are ways of inspecting what's happening uh, and that there are, there are punishments for not adhering to uh, the policies in place. Uh, we should be making sure that the people who we have um, the responsibility for are actually safe because they're not bringing it into the prison, right? So, but, but this goes back to the reason why you can do what you're doing in the prisons versus what we think we're doing in the nursing homes because we haven't gotten that completely right is because of how we look at the people in the prisons. They're generally not the people that most of the people in this conversation know. They're generally not the people who most of the, the people in this conversation have to worry about coming back to their community. They're not the people who the people in this conversation have to deal with the impact of them being extracted from the community on the community as they're in the prison. By that, I mean all that comes with it, the, the destruction of the family, the trauma, the knowledge that your loved one is sitting in a prison, a, a sitting, waiting target for COVID because we have refused to have a real conversation on it. So I, I think that the administration has to take another look at this. There's been a lot of positive for the administration when it comes to uh, the issue of uh, the novel coronavirus. But when you look at the, the prison system, I think that's an area where we're lacking. So how do you convince the public to make that a priority? You know, you and I both know that gun violence is up across the state, that crime is up across the state, that is often the result of people who don't have jobs, who are acting in these, you know, some of the petty crimes to do that, and also the incre increased tension that a lot of people are facing. And so it seems like a tough sell to say to people, given that reality, given what you mentioned about the people who make the decisions don't look like the people who are most affected by those decisions, how do you convince them that what's happening in the prison should be a priority, particularly when you think about who should be getting the vaccine and for whom the rollout is intended to help? There's no easy, I, I don't believe there's an easy answer to that one. Um, but what I do know, right, to, to, to talk, to go to one of my favorite people to quote, James Baldwin is, um, you know, ignorance alive with power is the most ferocious enemy justice could have. Right, and, and we operate in a space of uh, either real lack of knowledge or, or uh, purposeful lack of knowledge. Um, and so we will suggest that things that are not just, things that are not right are just because we don't know better. Uh, and so people in, in positions like mine have to be willing to step out and say, I recognize what we've come to this moment believing, but this is the truth. Um, we have to do things like, uh, it's not, it's not pleasurable for me to say that we don't have the right response uh, in the prison system, but it's necessary. Uh, it's not pleasurable for me to suggest that uh, race has a lot to do with that, but it's necessary so that we are operating in a space where we can make better decisions. 
we know that most of the people who go into our prisons will be coming out. They're not going into the prisons and staying there forever. And so the things that happen to them have impact not only on their community because these fictive boundaries that create what we call community aren't real. People move outside of those boundaries. The things that happen in one community affect another. And so the choices we make um, affect the lives that we lead. And we have to make better choices, not just for the other person who we think the issue uh, is resident in, but for ourselves as well. You know, the police accountability bill was controversial to say the least from the very start, from the time that you and others mentioned the words police accountability, people were already lining up to paint it as anti-police or to uh, condemn you for not engaging in conversation, even though others said, well, yes, I was a part of the conversation, but it wasn't the outcome that I wanted. So then I, I pushed that off. Now that some parts of the bill went into effect January 1st, it doesn't mean that it's a resolved issue. So how are you and your colleagues planning to address that in this legislative session? Yeah, I, I think that the um, 2020 bill has had a lot of the focus, but I think if we want to understand police accountability better, we have to understand that there was a bill in 2015 uh, and a bill in 2019 uh, leading into 2020 with the, the 2020 bill. There, I, I was not surprised by the response of uh, people to the suggestion that we were going to do this. And, and to be fair to people, when I first said it, was right after the issue with George Floyd happened. And I hadn't even talked to my colleagues. I just said we were doing the bill. So I understand how people were um, uh, taken off guard. But the, I, I think what is important is that people recognize that this is not about um, a love or a distaste for the police. Uh, we have to reframe this issue and talk about what I believe it's really about. And it's about uh, unchecked power. Um, and so we, we give an immense amount of power to these people who, who wear the uniform. Um, and if you don't check that power, these are human beings. I wore a uniform once when I was in the military. There was nothing different than from, from the day before I put that uniform to the day after I put that uniform on. The human being that had been formed was formed outside of wearing that uniform. Now, there are things that I would learn as I wore the uniform, of course, but I was who I was. So not everyone who comes into this space is coming into this space doing everything that we believe that the uniform means you do. Regardless of what we believe, we should be checking the power that we give because ultimately we give those officers the power of life and death over people. Um, and so the Police Accountability Task Force that was created in the 2019 bill uh, requires that they come back to us with some suggestions on uh, what we should be doing. We will be looking at those suggestions. Um, I am not doing a police um, huge uh, bill this session. At least I'm not starting off that way um, because I think we need time to see what we have created uh, out of the 2020 bill. But certainly there will be ongoing conversation. And I think that we have to be about the business of framing this issue the way that it really really takes place. And that is an issue of power um, and an issue that uh, that power inside of a system where I believe the roots of which are, are white supremacists, um, me has a specific meaning um, and, and make sure that people understand that context, whether they want to or not. I think if I might, I think that those of us who can 
who enter this space as a legislator have to be willing to say things that we know will make people uncomfortable or we will exist in a, in a place where it's no better than when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I grew up in the, the Bronx and had to run away from police. And that should never be the case. So one of the things that we try to do on the show is really lift up and affirm the power that we have. It's easy to feel powerless. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with so many things going on. And, and even in what you mentioned in your remarks at the beginning, all of the issues that we have to address in some way are often interconnected. As you think about the role of voters and of people across Connecticut, what's the power that you want them to affirm or the ways to see that they can raise their voices? Well, I used to take a lot of time to tell people about the power they have, but I don't need to do that anymore. I think this past summer should suggest to people that they have more power than they generally thought they had. Um, you know, look, when people choose to, they can get government to respond. People will say we don't respond, but government responds to, to people. The, the issue normally is that people don't interact with government. But when you had a summer of people, I'm not talking about the people in Haven, as important as that was, right? I'm not talking about the people in Bridgeport. I'm talking about people in Enfield, in Suffield, in Summers, who took to the streets of those municipalities to say, not, not in my name, my government shouldn't be allowing this to happen and then saying it's okay. When you had white suburban men and women standing up and saying, this is not good, we have to change it. You, you see that the government responds in a way that it normally doesn't because obviously I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I've been doing this police work as a legislator since the beginning and in total for almost 30 years. So I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but not every legislator can come out and say, even though I know in my heart of hearts, this is the right thing to do, that I feel I can do it. But with the public on our side, which they demonstrated, we passed a bill that hadn't happened anywhere else in the country. We passed a bill when people were in election season and knew that it would play into the election, but were willing to take that leap. And if that doesn't tell you that there's a lot of power for the public, um, then you're not paying attention. Let me just break it down in a way that most people really get. On most issues, nobody writes me a thing. Right? So we get 10, 15, 20 people writing. It's an emergency in, in the legislative office building in, in Hartford. Most of us know 10 or 15 people or even five, right? Five out of 15 is still pretty good. So there's a lot of power. Never believe that there is no power because there certainly is. Senator Gary Winfield represents Connecticut's 10th district. Senator Winfield, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Dwayne Betts talks about how his time in prison shapes the work he does today as a lawyer and an artist. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. When I started college, I was um, 24, 25 years old. When I graduated, I guess I was 29 years old. I wasn't like any of my peers. And my biggest struggle, and this is beside the fact that I did eight and a half years in prison, I mean, that made me different too, right? 
when I when I went to college, I was different from all of my peers, and I just did not know how I fit in. Somehow, one, I found the most welcoming community and environment that I've ever experienced in the world in the various college campuses and college communities that I've been a part of. But that has been because at the best of those places, among the best of my peers, among the best of my professors, they looked at all of us as idiosyncratic. They sought to find value, not in the ways that we were similar, but in the ways that our differences made us create something that singularly we couldn't create. That's part of a Quinnipiac University commencement address given by Reginald Dwayne Betts in 2019. I had the honor of introducing him to the audience, and his life story is both haunting and inspiring. It shapes his commitment to advocating for criminal justice reform. Betts spent nearly nine years in prison on felony charges from an armed carjacking he committed when he was 16. That experience fuels his commitment to advocating for those behind bars and those re-entering society. Betts is a graduate of Yale Law School and a PhD in law candidate at Yale. He was a member of the Coordinating Council on the Office of Juvenile Justice under the Obama administration, and he's currently a member of Connecticut's Criminal Justice Commission. He's a writer and a poet, and his most recent book of poetry is called Felon. Dwayne Betts joins us today. Welcome to Disrupted. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Dwayne, we've talked a lot over the years about not just your journey, but your commitment to really rethinking a lot of the issues that people take for granted. And even in this last year, when issues of criminal justice became sort of the thing that people were talking about, you were pushing back against the notion that it could be a one-stop approach to reform. Why are these issues so important to you? Yeah, and I, I think to to be fair, I, I'm not sure if people ever argue that it should be a one-stop shop for understanding what reform should look like. But I do think that it's a way in which when you're an advocate and when you're a politician and and when you're thinking about policy, you tend to frame the questions and the solutions in a way that's most beneficial to get the outcome that you want. So if, if you want to have less people in prison, today you might focus on nonviolent drug offenses or you might focus on nonviolent crimes more broadly. Um, if you want to get people out of prison because of COVID today, you might say it's 11,000 people locked up in Connecticut. I think now it's about, about 9,500. You might say uh, a third of those have you know, less than two years left on their sentence. So let's focus on people who have less than two years left on their sentence. And and all of those are sort of plausible responses. Uh, I still think it's important to have somebody that's making a case for the fact that we have people who still have a decade left to serve who should be free, that we have people who uh, we have states across the country with parole rates that's less than 5%, that's less than 10%. And I just think it's important also acknowledge that um. And the need to account for violence, there is also a need to to grapple with how to think about uh, what violence does to communities, you know. And, and so, you know, we talk about accountability. I think that we need to have more complicated discussions about what that actually means in practice and, and not just what it means um, sort of rhetorically. So what does accountability look like or, or what should it look like? And you raise that point as someone who has really been 
on both sides of the law, so to speak, so that you've served time, you know that experience, you continue to advocate for people who are incarcerated, but now you're a lawyer with a JD from Yale Law School, which puts you into a particular class of people who now have the opportunity to really use that platform to shape the conversation about account- accountability. <laughs> with a Yale Law degree. You know, the funny thing about a Yale Law degree, I mean, the funny thing about about some of this stuff to me is that um, I think I had something to say when I was a poet, you know, with an MFA from Warren Wilson. And, 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 and part of what I hope to be able to say now is that those degrees can't be the full metric of the way in which we get permission to participate in a conversation. Uh, my life ha- has shown me that frequently it is. And, and and not just my life, I mean, my life amongst folks in prison, you know, they had a whole different kind of level of respect for me when I was more than just a poet, you know, when I was a lawyer. And part of that is because there is a skill set that comes with with some of these degrees that we earn and, and a skill set hopefully comes with some perspective and some training. Um, I don't know, though, I, I struggle with it all the time. I mean, what is what is my role in, in all of this? And, and you know, frankly, um, my role ends up being, you know, in some ways, it's, it's just as specific as anybody I might criticize. I just want to get people I know out of prison. And and I think in that way, um, if I remember that, though, if I remember that that's my center, I think in that way, I try to, um, I have to approach it with more nuance. Because the people that I want to get out of prison are, are like complicated folks. And a lot of times they've, you know, hurt people, a lot of folks, you know, hurt their families hurt their victims, hurt their communities. And, um, and, and I grapple with that with them because, uh, cause I've been there, you know? So a couple of years ago, you and I were at the Cheshire Correctional Institute for a black history month program of all things. And I remember it being this very awkward experience of looking out into the sea of black and brown faces of understanding that you and I had the ability to leave whenever we wanted to, but feeling compelled to be in that space because the men who were there, they knew who you were. They knew your story. They knew the work that you were doing. How do you deal with that tension that, you know, in some ways it feels like survivor's remorse, that you've been able to have these different experiences, but you also know what it's like for people who don't have those opportunities or are still battling it every day on the inside? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, it's a it's a philosopher, L.A. Paul, who who wrote a book called Transformative Experiences. She talks about the way in which some experiences change you um, irrevocably and change you in a way that you can't predict in advance. And so, you know, you say, I want to go to law school. I want to be a lawyer. You can learn a lot about being a lawyer. You know, you could read books about it. You could read, you know, you could read fiction. You could read poetry, and you could read nonfiction about what what it means to be a lawyer. You could talk to people who actually are lawyers. And so, you know, although that experience of going to law school will change you, it won't really change you in a way in which is completely foreign to you. The experience of school is is similar. I got a graduate degree in poetry, and I got a graduate degree in law. And despite what some people might think, the experiences are kind of similar. It's nothing like going to prison. You know, it changes you in ways that you can't predict on, on the front end. And 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 having gone, I mean, for me, um, and, and the way in which it changes you is singular. You know, it changes everybody in, in, in a different way. And I think for me, uh, 
you know, I, I go back uh, for a number of reasons. It's like, uh, you know, you do criminal justice reform and, and, and it's a thing. It's almost like being a missionary. But when I started returning to prisons, uh, you know, bringing my books in the prisons, chopping it up with people who were inside, I did it because I was asked. And then I did it again because I recognized that it was something of a duty. I remembered that when I was inside, people didn't come back. And um, and every time I come back, it's a it's a tension. You know, every time I come back, it's a like, what is the value of 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 my presence, right? But um, and it's also like a a a kind of fear, not of safety or anything like that. Although I mean, sometimes it is, but it's just a fear of um of being able to see somebody else broken in a way that I can't, I can't deal with. And so part of going back is confronting that, you know, it's like, you have to know what you, you have to know what your country does to people. And you have to remember what, what people do to others in your country, you know? And so for me, going back is, 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 is all of that is baked into the decision of return. But fundamentally, I think, um, I believe that the same way in which I visit colleges and I give talks, I think people in prison, they deserve the same thing. You know, you, you give talks in communities. Uh, we're doing this show right now that's for the public. I think people in prison uh, deserve the same thing. And as a poet, I should sing where I'm welcome. And they welcome me inside. And so I go inside to sing. You wrote this piece for the New York Times Magazine called Kamala Harris, Mass Incarceration and Me. And now that we are on the cusp of a new administration, Kamala Harris is the vice president-elect. What are your expectations or what would you say to that administration to really take seriously these issues of reform and the kinds of points that you reflected on in that piece? Um, I mean, first, you know, we recognize that there's only so much you could do on a federal level. But I do think rhetorically on the federal level, more can be done. I think that uh, I think people could start, you know, getting clemency and being pardoned um, for crimes that include people who've committed violent crimes. I think we could take it far more seriously. I think that uh, federal parole should be brought back. You know, I think that the federal government could model some of the changes that we want to happen on the state level. And then I think beyond that, you know, just as a a, a fact of having a bully pulpit, I think that we could change the conversation around what we imagine punishment um, should look like and shouldn't look like. I think that it's, it's just, um, it hasn't really happened. You know, we, we haven't, we haven't asked ourselves how much suffering goes on in prison and what, and what amount of suffering should, should we think is, is, is permissible. And so I think, um, just as a as a as a function of the bully pulpit, they can lead those conversations. And then, more importantly, I think when you're talking about who gets appointed to the federal bench, you can make some serious changes around who gets appointed to the federal bench, um, including you know more people who are defense attorneys, including more people who are civil rights scholars, you know, including more people who they always criticize folks for being on the federal bench. And, and I recognize that you know the the the, the criminal cases won't be the center other work. But I, I think it is important rhetorically to say, um, you know, we could invite somebody, we could appoint somebody to the federal bench who who um, who spent their time 
as a as a civil rights lawyer or who spent that time as a scholar that worked on issues of incarceration, like Paul Butler should be um, appointed to the to the to the federal bench, should be on the DC circuit. And he shouldn't be on the DC circuit as an anomaly. You know, it's like, yeah, well they put Paul Butler up there. He should be like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they put Paul Butler up there. Paul Butler's up there and and, and so is Rachel Barkow. Mark Osler's up there, you know, because because that's how it is for prosecutors. It's just like these random folks that get appointed, and it's just not like that for people who are who have a different viewpoint and perspective. We interviewed Paul Butler for the show, and he talked about how his time working within the system, he thought he could change it, and instead he found that the system changed him, and he wasn't willing to continue accepting that. And one of the things about working within the system is that people get accused and criticized in ways that often gets in the way of the work that can be done. And so Kamala Harris certainly felt that she certainly faced a lot of criticism because of her time as a prosecutor. Do you think that critique is warranted or do you think there's a nuance that needs to be held of having people in various offices who can bring that insight? I don't know if I want to answer that question. Oh, you have to answer that. Uh, uh, I would say a couple of things. I, I would say, you know, like Paul Butler talks about it himself. I mean, he made a choice to call people cretins. That, that's how he chose to view the people who he was prosecuting. You read John Thompson's biography, and John Thompson is coaching the Hoyas, and, and, and he's having a meet with, with Rayful Edmonds, like, hold fast. Look, man, we got to think about what you're doing. Like we got to think about what your relationship to my players would do for their future, and, and you know, and he's having to talk to him, and he ain't calling Rayful a cretin, you know what I mean? So, so one thing I think we need to be clear is that we make decisions of how we characterize people, and this is not the system that does that. You know, the system might put you in a situation where, um, where you do a prosecution and, and mandatory minimum is the response, and you could say that, um. You know, I went along with that despite the fact that uh, I had some. I mean, Mark Osler was a part of the system, too. And Mark Osler says that it was a defense attorney who always made the case that the judge could go under the mandatory minimum and that it was absurd that he didn't. And he always lost. And Mark Osler always heard him lose. And then one day it clicked in his head. It's like, wait, you know, you're right. And so as an actor within the system, you have agency. I just don't believe that the system completely subverts our identities as as, as as humans, but also, yo, people people kill people, people rob people. If you look at the, I mean, people commit car thefts. If you just look at the news, I, you know, you don't have to inflate the incident of these things to make us feel like we live in some kind of wild, wild west, but you also don't have to act as if those things don't happen. And so what I want from, you know, I like, like I, I love Paul Butler. I, I love the fact that he's brought a, a, a kind of a, a theory uh, of hip hop to how we think about criminal justice law. But Ready to Die is a really profoundly, profoundly critique, not just of the system, but a critique of the behavior of some folks in the game. I mean, the, 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 the album is so depressing, right? It is a journey through what it meant to, to be one kind of young black man living in an inner city that was like fraught with violence and being completely incapable of being able to sustain not just like a, a sense of self and an identity, but the, the desire to live. Like that is what ready to die is. And so if I am a prosecutor and I am working 
the cases of men who come in to the courtroom. If you're a prosecutor and you are prosecuting the person who stuck up the train, right? And, and, and did it with no regard for man, woman, child, pregnant or not. You got a different kind of duty and a different kind of responsibility. And you should carry it out with a, a, a deep sense of sadness. And, and and the person who has that case, you shouldn't look at them like a cretin or whatever. And maybe the sentence they get today is completely absurd and disproportionate, right? And 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 if you in the system, you could say that and you could do that as well, right? Like I didn't have to get a decade. You know, my the my charges carried five to forty. Actually it carried like five to life and plus twenty. But I didn't have to get a decade. The prosecutor didn't have to make that case. And so I don't know. I don't know if I buy this whole idea that um, you know, if you work within the system, you're 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 duty bound to to become somebody who's invested in the destruction of people. Like I just I just don't I just fundamentally don't believe that. And the reason why I don't believe that is because you just have to have account, you know, and, and the system has failed, but the system is not bound to fail. I mean, it's just like so I, I just don't believe that. I, and, and I'm not I don't want to give anybody a pass on that bad behavior. I cringe when when I listen to Paul Butler say he was calling somebody a cretin. I, I don't I don't need like and I don't I don't I don't need uh I need I need him to say that and recognize that that was a personal failing, and that it was a reason why that personal failing exists. Just like when I call white folks the, the devil, right? This was a personal moral failing that 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 came from me. It did not come from uh, a a system or a structure. It just came from me. It was like something that I had to grow from, and and I I, I think that too often we have sort of imagined that uh. If we just switch sides, then somehow our, our own moral and personal failures uh, disappear. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a lawyer, author, and poet living in New Haven. We'll hear more from him after the break. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We're talking with Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, a member of the Criminal Justice Commission in the state of Connecticut, and a PhD in law candidate at Yale. His most recent book of poetry is called Felon. Betts went to prison when he was 16 on a felony conviction for armed carjacking, and he spent nearly nine years in adult prisons. I asked him to talk about his work with the Million Book Project, which will bring literary time capsules of 500 books to 1,000 prisons and juvenile detention centers across the U.S. I am the founder and a director, and it's fortunate, right? Because it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's become a way to employ a, f- a few folks, and, and we got a program coordinator, and we got a program manager. And, um, and, and more importantly, you know, we've been able to sort of build some relationships with with Department of Corrections across the country and, and just like have um, some serious conversations about uh, the possibility of a book and the significance and importance of books, of literature. Um, and it's cool because, you know, a lot of a lot of the discussions around criminal justice reform 
uh, about changing policies, and, and and I think that's important, right? But um, it's, it's it's much less work being done publicly on on like providing more for the people who are inside, and I think that this was um, my ability to to publicly do something that provides more, and and you know I think that books are a, a vehicle to 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 understand and and become aware of the possibilities of the world. I mean, I remember like, you know, getting it's a magazine bookseller called Edward R. Hamilton Bookseller, and 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 you could get this huge, uh, like uh, it was like a, it was like a a newspaper almost with really small print just filled with books, and it wouldn't tell you anything about the books. So you just had to pick books based on the subject matter. We have things organized by subject matter, um, and based on the title. And I just remember having, you know, whenever they would do it, they would produce it quarterly or something. They having a new one, and uh, and just like slowly reading through the thing as if it was a book, and deciding what books that I would buy in prison. And it was a, uh, you know, freedom begins with a book, and, and I think that's sort of the premise of the Million Book Project. But also is premised on um, on creating a whole culture that that acknowledges that prisons exist. Because if you recognize and acknowledge that they exist, like as writers, as thinkers, um, then we could really, really begin to seriously take into account um, what it means for the prisons that we have in this country to exist. Because you know most writers have never been inside a prison. What we did that day was quite rare. You know most people don't go inside. You know, and so I think, um, and, and they definitely weren't going into prisons in the 80s. And I, and I also, I think that's the point. I'm trying to say that, like, about Butler and about everybody that was a prosecutor in the 80s and the 90s, like, most of us weren't going into prisons in the 80s and 90s unless we had loved ones there. So I don't want to, like, like actually cudgel folks who were prosecuting as if, like, we were, like, really as a society aware. You know, we got this thing where now we want to judge the past through the lens of the new Jim Crow. Or we want to judge the past through the lens of, of of Kamala Harris actually being critiqued for her record, as if she was being critiqued in 1985. And you know, we want to act like it has ever been a case where people who go to elite law schools want to be state prosecutors. People who go to law school and become prosecutors are, are people who are trying to just work an honest job by and large. You know, we can't like generalize because because it's not like going and becoming a a, a AUSA. That is fundamentally different. You know, that is like an elite job. It's always been an elite job, been a pathway to, you know, um, political aspirations, you know, been a pathway to a judgeship. Being a state prosecutor here in Connecticut is not the pathway to an elite career. And I think that um, just to say a bit about, about Harris, I think that she was besmirched a lot as if she was an elitist. And, and, and people just seem to be completely unaware of you know, like like folks who never would want to be a state prosecutor were criticizing her as being an elitist. And I was like, this is just kind of absurd. You know, it is a, a brutal, unforgiving job that um, leaves room for people to ruin people's lives, but also leaves room for people to, to bring some grace to folks' lives. And I think that if we reimagined our system and reimagined the roles and responsibilities, more folks would um would do the latter instead of doing the former. One of the real gifts of art and of creativity in all its many forms is that it can bring that sense of clarity, it can bring a sense of context, but it can also challenge us to confront those uncomfortable truths that we often dismiss. And so your book, Felon, forces us to do that in important ways 
but you also use different techniques within that book of poetry that connects with people who may or may not have that experience that you speak of, who may see it from a distance or who know within their own family and their own community what it is like to be a survivor of crime and also what it's like to be someone who has committed a crime. Is there a particular poem from that collection? I know it's like asking you, you know, which child is your favorite? But in this moment that we're in, in the United States, is there a particular poem that you want people to hear? That's an interesting question. I mean, part of it, of course, is, uh, yeah, part of it, of course, is, is that, you know, you write a book. The difference between writing a novel, I think, and writing a collection of poems is, is the novel could be about um, one thing or, you know, it could be about a um, hundred things, but they could be pulled in and tethered into like one uh, universe, so to speak, or, or one solar system, right? But a, a collection of poems is kind of like trying to grapple with the with the with the galaxy, you know, and it's like um, and it's like poems are sort of tangentially related because they're all poems, or maybe they're all poems about prison, or maybe they're all poems about people who touch prison. But but then every poem is doing something like completely different, and so I read one, but I'm reading one because it's what I'm I'm thinking about right now, and 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 the poem is talking about you know, um. A lot of people talk about language and felon and don't call me a felon and uh, don't judge me by the worst thing I've ever done. And I find that, you know, that's never really what happens. It's just that, you know, or it is what happens frequently, but not using the word felon won't change it. And um, and, I, and so I wrote this poem and I was thinking about like my kids and and what does it mean that, to have to tell them about things that I've done and and recognizing that abandoning the word felon wouldn't do anything to make the conversation in this poem like any any easier you know so I, i'll read this one so i think and i think this is you know for what it's worth i think it's um i think it's important essay on re-entry at 2 a.m without enough spirits spilling into my liver to know enough to call my tongue to silence my youngest learned of years I spent inside a box, a spell, a kind of incantation I was under, not whiskey, but history. I robbed a man, this months before he would drop bucket after bucket on opposing players. My youngest son. He and the entire bedraggled bunch five and six, and he leaping as if every layup erases something. That's how I saw it. My screaming, coaching, sweating presence recompense for the pen. My father has never seen me play ball as part of this. My son's brother knew. My oldest brought into this truth by a stranger. Tell me we aren't running towards failure is what I want to ask my sons. But it is two in the a.m. The oldest has gone off the dream in the comfort of his room. The youngest, despite him seeming more lucid than me, is just reflecting cartoons back from his eyes. So when he tells me, Daddy, it's okay. I know what's happening is some struggling angel. 
lost from his pack, finding a way to fulfill his duty. Lending words to this kid who crawls into my arms, wanting more than stories of my past, the sleep that he fought while I held court at a bar with men who knew that when the drinking was over, the drinking would make the stories we brought home any easier to tell. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, one of the things that has been difficult for many people is in this last year of all the pandemics and the protests, how do we talk to children? How do we allow them to have their innocence and grow up like anyone else, but still being realistic and being honest so that they know who we are and know who they are as well and who they can be. So hearing you talk about that conversation and the conversations we have to keep having. So thank you for sharing that. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a lawyer and author, and his latest collection of poetry is entitled Felon. Dwayne, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. This was fun. It's cool. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>